Hello, I'm Nikki Gomes, and welcome back to part two of my conversation with Dr. Blake Curtis. Talk a little bit about the year's experience because this was a this was the one of the turning points in your session. This was probably the most defining moment of my career, and I remember doing the the correlations about 15, 20 times just to double check it. But what what we'll do is I'm going to kind of give you a fun example, something that's very layman. So there's a difference between years of experience and years of exposure. So we'll start with an analogy. Then we'll do a little fun exercise. So remember in high school when you had those one or two students who failed that grade numerous times and they finally got through? Well, Nikki, by the definition, they're more experienced than you. <laughs> so this is actually an example of years of exposure. Um, so simply being exposed to something for a longer time does not increase proficiency at all. Now, from a business perspective, you'll like this one, Nikki. Look at organizations in big tech like Amazon, Google, and Meta. Now they have ha they have less than half the amount of experience as their competitors, but they outperform them on multiple fronts. Another example of the years of exposure. Now as an expertise psychologist, I measure experience by your task quality, task-based experience, not time-based experience. Why? And here's the, here's the sympathetic part, because time-based experience requires no effort. Simply live longer and eventually you'll get rewarded. <laughs> however, however, and that's the way most businesses uh, run, right? You know, the longer you're yeah. here, the more uh, experience you should have. And Good. hey, by the way, we'll increase your pay and give you another position, right? Because you've been here X amount of years. Good, good old boy system. We'll keep them in as long as we can. They've been around here. Now, right. the, the reason why I use task based experience because it's quantifiable, I can measure it, I can see it, it's more objective. And it doesn't disadvantage women, minorities, and older professionals like years of experience does. And I'll talk about that a little later. But what I did was I recently published a YouTube video called Your Hiring Practices Are Creating a Workforce Gap in STEM. And we said, we're going to talk about debunking years of experience. Now, what we're going to do, Nikki, we're going to debunk it in seven steps here. So the step, first step is a years of, years of experience presumes an individual works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and 52 weeks out the year. So if you do the math for anybody who's watching, that means one year work experience equals to 8,760 hours. Feel free to Google it, fact check me. That's step one. Step two, the average professional works five days a week, eight hours a day in 52 weeks out the year. However, that's assuming no paid time off, Nikki, no holidays, you don't get sick, nothing happens. So that means at max, you can have a total of 2,080 hours. Now think about that. There's 8,760 hours in a year. On average, you only get 2,080. So on step three, step, step three, think about it. 2,080 hours is not even equivalent to a quarter of the year, Nikki. Not even a quarter. So step four, based on this math, it would take you four to six years to get one quantifiable year of experience. We've already debunked this at step four, but just, just for fun's sake, we'll go three steps lower. Now, surprisingly, and this is a part you'll like, the average professional only spends two to four hours completing the activities in their job description. Why? It's plannings, emails, meetings, instant messages, uh, not paying attention. <laughs> this means on average, you're, you're going to have about 1,040 hours of just task-based experience actually doing the, uh, the task on your job description. So if it's 1,040, Nick, it would take you seven and a half years <laughs> to get to one. And so the last two steps, step six, is that what we found is, is that 
when years increased their hours, it didn't significantly or consistently improve performance. And individuals with five years of experience were just as proficient and oftentimes more proficient as individuals with 10 years of experience. Now, what we did find is that with increased age, it led to overconfidence and they were not aligned to the performance. And lastly, I want you guys to think about this. Years of experience does not consider how many hours a professional works in a day, the quality of their work. For example, for example Nikki Neen, you could work for four hours to maybe configure a firewall, maybe build a VM or audit specific security controls. But I, th I think you would agree with me that our task quality is gonna be significantly different. Our task speed, which we, when you consider task speed, the quality or the quantity, how many times have you done this task before I have? Maybe you're more proficient in task capacity. Can you do the same task while also doing something else? That's right. how we have expertise. So, and it makes yeah, I mean, sense. I mean, you know, we yeah. have things that we do on a daily basis, right? And then you have those those tasks that may occur, what, maybe monthly or, or annually. And so those are things that we have less experience with. So right. we're going to take more time doing those things. So the more time you have on the task, spending on it, it just totally makes sense that, hey, this person ends up with more experience because they've spent more time doing this set task or the set right. thing. Not right. because and they this position and have had experience performing a task every now and then. Right. And I'm, I'm going to do a fun one. Uh, and this is just minority. And you'll be able to finish my sentence. And a lot of other people won't be able to understand this. In life, remember when our parents told us you got to do twice as much to do what? Half as much. That's how we were raised, right? And so this finding was the most significant turning point in my career because it completely changed how I viewed experience. It opened up my eyes to more systemic issues that I see plaguing younger and older professionals, women Absolutely. and minorities. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, I, it's very evident in this, uh, this field because what are people always looking for? The experience. And yeah. so someone that has just, you know, graduated and may have, you know, have just immediate knowledge and could probably bring, maybe be brought in and perform a task repetitively and be brought up to speed as opposed to I've been in this business for 10 years, but I've only <laughs> done that thing maybe like three times. Right. And the, <laughs> the, the part that will bother you, Nikki, is when you're mandating years of experience with no statistical or scientific rationale, it starts bordering on an ethical dilemma because it actually hurts more women, minorities, and older professionals Absolutely. than any other target group. Because remember, women women were the, some of the first minorities in our workforce, and it statistically takes them longer to obtain these positions of authority and influence. So if you look at your typical org chart, Nikki, what do you see less at the top? Women and minorities. Now, women and minorities, yes. Right. For, for African-Americans like myself, it's even more systemic because my culture and people are less exposed, quote, experience to career paths in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Now, there's a reason why it's, while why years of experience hurts minorities. There's a system thinking concept called, or an archetype called success to the successful or to the, to the victor belongs the spoils. Now, what happens, and you know this from experience, this occurs when an individual belongs to a certain group or demographic that is historically successful or more exposed to knowledge in a specific profession. What that does, it gives them innate advantages and predispositions 
like they'll have a mature network of like-minded successful colleagues. They'll have a mature network of family members that have a long lineage that they can use as reference. They have more access to education and training, or they just grow up in a culture that is more exposed to cybersecurity, GRC and technology. So this is why, you know, while I was writing that 600 page monster of a book or a dissertation, <laughs> I was, I'm like, maybe my efforts need to change because my people are still getting hurt. Women yeah. are still getting hurt. Younger people coming out of the fields trying to meet these unrealistic job descriptions. So I'm like, my whole focus now is how can I use what I know to remove barriers for the next generation of professionals? And that's a very, 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 very important, important piece right now. And something that's, you know, pretty near and dear to my heart as well. You know, right. I'm a woman and I'm a minority and I've been in, you know, super minority in your case. Positions. So, you know, I've, right. I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to have, you know, great mentors and to, you know, meet and get with like-minded people, but not everyone yeah. gets those opportunities right off the back. It's, it's a challenge and it's a struggle and it needs to start, you know, when people are very young, you know, to understand that you have a place and if you'd like to, you can do this. Yeah, that belonging factor is everything. And it's fortunate that you you had a mentor role model. Unfortunately for me, I, I, didn't, I didn't have one person I could consistently call a mentor or a role model growing up. And I, I think it's, you know, However, due to some some childhood neglect and unfortunate life events, I just kind of created my own philosophical mother and father that I would try to impress. Uh, it's, it's a little, little strange, but it's it's one thing that motivated me as younger because I dealt with anxiety and things of that nature. Now, as a result, when I mentor, I try to exude the attributes or characteristics that I would value in a mentor, like someone who is vulnerable, someone who is conscientious, someone who is engaging someone who's actively listening to me and someone who advocates for it. So that that's what I try. I try to be all the things that I didn't have when I was a child. That way someone else doesn't have to go through it too. And I think that's a pretty awesome thing about you is because it's very, very, very seldom do you find um, someone who has been through any type of experiences and hardships that can uh, turn things around in such a way and have those, uh, you know, have a, something to look forward to and a way to build themselves to help others. So right. um, it's great that you have found a way to um, sort of uh, kind of complete yourself and still be able to be there for somebody else. Right. I, you just have to be able to turn adversity into an opportunity for someone exactly. else. The biggest thing is like life is going to happen. It's not supposed to be easy, but it's right. through the turbulence, it's becoming resilient that you're going to be more valuable for, for other people. And so that's that's one thing I, I really advocate for. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you think is a common myth or something that people misunderstand about this profession? Now you're going to get a laugh out of this nigga. Me and you talked about this too. I I think most people think we're actually working in a regulated profession. I like healthcare, accounting, or law, uh, or, or, or law itself, but we don't meet the criteria, on, nor do we have state and federal support to be viewed as a mature discipline or profession yet. Now, 
what my study discovered is that there are some minimum things you have to do to become proficient. And two things that you can do today is start fixing your hiring and your hiring process and standardized job descriptions. Mm -hmm. And the way that you can do that is stop creating your own. First of all, there are peer review <laughs> frameworks out there. Um, you're hurting people. You're hurting people by creating your own because just because you think yours is very proficient, it won't scale to another place. So what you could do right now is adopt two competency frameworks. One is by NIST. It's called the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, their workforce framework. And the other one that I really like is called the Skills Framework for Information Age, or we call it SOFIA. Now, by adopting these two frameworks, there are six principles you need to keep in mind to establish your profession. Number one, you have to establish a common body of knowledge to license professionals, not to certify. Now, keep in mind, we have over 938 certifications across 56 organizations, right? So we've yet to agree on a common body of knowledge, law number one. Uh, number two, uh, a profession will establish and enforce minimal standards for competency in education. That happens via licensure and legal incentivization. Imagine if a CIO, CISO, or IT auditor had to have a license to practice, and they're, they're, they have that monetary incentivization. Level oh, number three would be developing objective measures to evaluate competency. So the hiring practice is extremely subjective, biased, and it often disadvantages certain groups. So until the profession can adopt the NICE and SOFIA framework to conduct interviews and define their, what we call KSAs, knowledge, skills, and abilities, we'll continue to have a workforce gap. And you'll continue to have a proprietary subjective hiring and promotion practice where you're just subjectively looking at resumes instead of conducting a performance-based interview. Um, also, when it comes to like number four, having a code of ethics, these will vary by certifications, but they're not standardized and there's no penalty for breaking them. Like if we're, a lot of us has been IT auditors today, but if you ask yep. them what the IAF is, they won't know. If you ask them <laughs> what code of ethics, they, they yep. won't know. Yep. There's no penalty for not knowing it either. And so that brings us to level five, which is establishing a, a disciplinary mechanism to address deviation. So since there's no penalties for IT professionals, if breaches occur, uh, we start to resemble more of a trade than a regulated profession. Now, I'm optimistic that we can get there by adopting the SOFIA and NICE framework and then start licensing key positions, not licensing all, but the ones with the highest levels of inherent risks, like your CIOs, your CISOs, and IT auditors. Why? They protect critical infrastructure. And right now, what's going on? We have national and international threats. So they have a great deal of responsibility. And lastly, Nikki, the last step you need is to, uh, you need to license professionals to protect the integrity of the profession and protect them, yes. to protect the public so from incompetent so practitioners. Right, because if you're not protecting the public from incompetent practitioners, society may start questioning, why are you not licensed? Why is there no consistency across all these fields? Why do you have over 938 certifications? So what this means is we're gonna have a need to revamp criteria and better align it across academia, certification in the industry so we can have stricter alignment. Right. I, I certainly agree with that. I certainly agree. And I know that it's we're, we're going to have to get there. There is just right. there's no other way around it, especially right. with, like you said, the emerging technologies bringing on emerging threats. So yes. yeah. there's no other way to go. <laughs> <laughs> there's no other way to go. So thank you for sharing that. So 
Um, I want to shift back just a little bit. I mean, there's always so much to talk about, um, but I want to shift back just a little bit. You know, we talked about your journey and your experience growing up and, and, and how, you know, it's so important that we um, really support diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm-hmm. How do you think um, organizations such as ISACA can continue to really be a pillar and support those efforts? Mm, that's a good one. So I can kind of share my personal experience and I can give some, some advice. So I would say growing up in Mississippi and Tennessee as a young black man has been extremely challenging. Um, I remember growing up seeing visible racism, seeing actual Klansmen as a child and experiencing it firsthand. Uh, and I've experienced some some form of passive racism or bigotry in every school I've been in and unfortunately every job that I've been in. And you'll, you'll resonate with this one. The most significant way it affected my career when I was younger, I remember when I was younger, I used to apply to jobs and my first name, for a lot of people don't know, is actually Reginald. I go by Blake. I've always been my middle name. But I remember I used to apply to the same jobs, and some of them would be Reginald Curtis, some of them would be Blake Curtis. And I would receive less phone calls back from the interviewers if I used Reginald. Maybe that's a classism thing. Now, this phenomenon is not as bad nowadays, um, but mm-hmm. there's different challenges. Like as a woman right. or minority, um, the one thing that you and I probably deal with is um, you're often talked over during meetings. Um, you're cut off in the middle of your conversations or you're left out of important decisions. However, I've developed uh, a numerous strategies to fight those antics because one, my ancestors didn't spend hundreds of years to give me a voice to allow you to take it from me. It's not going right. to happen. Absolutely. So that's one thing that I, I advocate for. And unfortunately, even being a Black doctor creates another attribute to be impulsively judged by. But since my behavior and my work ethic has been consistent, I've been able to overcome that. And also, you know, with, with, with stoicism too. Now, there, there's a lot of things that Zaka and other organizations can do to support diversity, equity, and inclusion. And number one is first, you need to identify antiquated practices. That means think about the practices that have historically harmed underserved populations, like unrealistic job descriptions, mandating years of experience. I just explained why, how that hurts. And then not creating onboarding opportunities to get minority professionals more exposed to STEM so they can compete at the same level. Um, don't hire just for the sake of hiring, but take ownership in your development. Stop trying to hire superstars. Right. How about you take a place and start developing them? Is next, don't promote for the sake of promoting. And you say it again. There you go. There you go. <laughs> So remember that you can only attract talent by actively putting practices in place to retain talent. You need to be absolutely transparent about how you're promoting and how you're hiring to sustain trust and motivate your employees. And people always say, you know, we do market research, we do that. You need to be more transparent about that, especially with your African-American professionals, because we still have PTSD. Other, otherwise, what we start doing <laughs> is we start creating our own fallacies and thoughts that's possibly linked to our race and ethnicity. Maybe, maybe I'm not good enough or maybe because that happens. It but does. you as a leader, you are, you are actually obligated to identify that. And I'm telling you now, so take notes. Um, the more transparent you are, the more loyalty you'll have from high performing minorities, which will in turn influence other minorities to join your organization and look to these individuals for mentorship. And what does that do? It increases your value generation and your revenue generation. I would say third, Nikki, is show some cultural sensitivity to people from uh, different ethnicities. 
Um, but this goes both ways. And so I want you guys to listen. Like, I'm not just pro-Black. Whether you're white, Black, Asian, Latin American, or other, you have to create some psychological safety. Now, what, what does that mean? You need to make sure it's okay for people to make mistakes instead of immediately getting angry. And you got to remember that these people are a byproduct of the environment they are raised in. They're not actively trying to hurt your feelings. So seek understanding. Don't seek blame and distrust. And the, these last two, and you'll like this one, Nikki, don't overdo it with DNI. <laughs> don't yes. overdo it. <laughs> don't be so strict that you're now hurting other professionals like Caucasians. For example, right. you'll have some cultural issues if your white colleagues feel scared to voice their opinion about racial issues without fear or retribution or judgment. You have to level the playing field, create a safe space for open and honest conversation without judgment and assumption. Otherwise, you're now disadvantaging another group unintentionally. And lastly here, realize that there's still a significant pay gap for minorities. Instead of conducting your own marketing analysis, have it conducted by an objective third party. Take it from an actual research scientist because that third party can obfuscate the results and filter by gender and race and give you actually quantifiable data, not just looking on Indeed and Monster and doing your own. Remember, HR, they don't hire scientists. They don't hire expertise psychologists. They come from business and law degrees. So they're not going to be able to quantitatively tell you where that gap is. And there's always inherent bias in subjectivity when you conduct your own research. Plus, if you're not 100% transparent, about how you conduct that research, then it's not equitable or objective to your workforce at all. I agree with the transparency so, so much. <laughs> you know, if you put out some numbers and people have no idea how you got there, then it's not really worth much. <laughs> it's it's trust too, because like I said, it, it took me and you a long time to get into this field. Now we're mm -hmm. advocating for other people but the only reason why they want to come in is because they see us. That's right. it. They see us. Can, I, I would like to be like you. I would like to have my career moved up too. But you have to give us the financial ability to do that. Period. Agreed. Agreed. I so agree with that. You are definitely one of Osaka's top volunteers. You you put in a lot of hours with Osaka. And um, thank you for being a part of the Osaka volunteer group and doing all that you do. But uh, one of your most known pieces and, and roles that you play is being a speaker. Mm -hmm. And so you have a really great reputation with ISACA um, in the speaking community. And I want to know, can you tell the viewers how long you've been contributing to ISACA? Yeah. And, and how did you get to be such a dynamic speaker and did you ever have any any fears of, of speaking in public or or if you did, how did you overcome that? Yeah, uh, I can definitely speak to that. So I started contributing for Isaacca back in 2018, but it was how polished and professional the organization was. I just became completely enamored with them. So I actively started publishing articles, blogs, uh, assisting other professionals on Isaacca Engage. And I've always had an act for writing where there was being younger and writing love notes or to writing monographs. <laughs> and um, I've always kind of been that charismatic person. But one thing I found in writing is that it was the one place I could get my arguments across cogently and comprehensively. 
Uh, now, I wanted to also take what I what I learned as a professional leader um, and as a cybersecurity auditor and put that back into the work and actually give back. And so what that turned into is like now I'm the, the global topic leader for COVID governance and other frameworks. I'm currently drafting weekly practice questions. There, there is no certified ones out there, but what can I do to help the fill this workforce gap? So I'll just give you my content for free. I don't care. I just want to be able to help. Um, in addition, you know, I'm the, the technical editor for Digital Trust Ecosystem Framework, and I spoke, spoke at numerous conferences where I met Nikki, and um, we we had had a blast. The one thing to do, and this is going to probably shock a lot of you guys, I'm, I'm an introvert, completely an introvert, which means I don't know any of my neighbors around here. You may ask me, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but in the field of cybersecurity, and IT auditing, this is my tribe, this is my culture, this is my this is my village. So I'm willing to, you know, go out of my way. But you you have to start getting a level of discomfort to grow. Without that, you won't you won't know it. For those people who are struggling with speaking better, there are a few books called The Art of Art of Conversation by Judy Apps. You could also do verbal judo. Um, there are some leadership programs as well. But you know, I used to have the same issues as other people with a lot of filler words or not enunciating clearly. And one thing that Nikki does, she is a great speaker too. I remember hearing her speak. She's like, do you want to go on first? I'm like, no, I want you to talk for me. You sound great. <laughs> yeah, you're going to just make me look even better. You, you go out there and talk for me. And it's even for, for minorities, you know, we come from a, a different culture where there's a lot of slang, uh, whether you're from the South. And it, Nikki, be honest, it, sometimes it slips out every now and then. It does. It does. <laughs> it does. I agree. <laughs> but when you're around other professional minorities or African-Americans, it will get better. So that's what's one of the things I could definitely recommend is just get out there, try, contribute much as possible, get into the Zaka Engage groups. There's a lot of stuff out there for women in, in tech and cyber, too. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. ISACA has been a really, really great organization for me. Introvert by nature. I <laughs> I go out, I enjoy them. I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm in my little hole. <laughs> you know, I mean, much, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, you know, my 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 previous job, I used to travel a ton and you know, we would be together all day with you know our team. And then at the end of the day, they'd want to go eat. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I just want to go work out and go to sleep. <laughs> it's been a long yeah. day. So I can chill. And it's so funny, people would never put us in that category because, no. you know, we, we talk about what we enjoy, though, what's passion to us, but then put us in an area where it's like, you know, something that we don't really enjoy, don't know a lot about. It's hard for us to even engage in that conversation. Right. You'll be, Right. I mean, people would never know that me and you were that because this is so natural. But at the same time, we're talking about something we're passionate about. But as, as a leader, too, you have to understand that you have different pockets of expertise within your group. Right. And just because you have the, the loudest person or the people who talk the most doesn't mean that's the expertise. That's a poor proxy. You have to start taking note that those personality differences for being an introvert or being someone who's an extrovert. They have it. You just haven't given them a platform to speak. That used to be me many years ago. I'm, I'm more aggressive now in meetings. But if what you can do, it's a good one as a, as a leader, um, start actually doing air airtime sharing where that first 10 minutes, see who's speaking up the most and what they're talking about. And if you start realizing there's one or two people who don't contribute as much, 
it's not that they're a low contributor, it's that you need to have some side conversations about what are their expectations for contributing or learning or what are they like. And then you start evenly distributing that time out. And what you'll do is you'll pull them out their shell and they'll become your next leaders. Yeah, give them an opportunity. You're right. It's just all about the opportunity. I think we've had or we've created opportunities for ourselves when they weren't available. And so right. being in the positions that we're in, we've, we've learned over the years to overcome some of these things. Right. So for newer people starting out, I think that's great advice with the books and um, just really learning their place and, and, you know, learning that they have a voice and try to, you know, sometimes you got to play, <laughs> uh, right. obviously duck and dodge, but <laughs> sometimes you got to right. get in where you fit in, but um, right. it's, it's definitely, there's lots of tools out there. So I appreciate you sharing those. So you survived a near-death experience. I want to hear mm-hmm. a little bit about that. A near-death experience. Uh, yeah, everybody wants to hear about this one. So, yes, and hopefully this puts a lot of stuff in perspective for everyone. I, I really want you guys to pay attention to this one. So very early in my career, I used to make a lot of excuses for why I didn't have things. I even used race at some times and being, being behind. I never got around to educating myself in IT and cyber. And I was just so focused on that next day or what I was going to do that weekend. Now, interestingly, you probably can't vision it. I was actually a natural bodybuilder. Um, I was getting ready for my first competition. But unfortunately, in 2010, I was diagnosed with a muscular dystrophy disease uh, called myasthenia gravis. And within three weeks time, I went from 196 pounds being 10% body fat to 118 pounds in just those three weeks. Now, I lost the ability to speak because all this has to do with muscles. I couldn't chew food. I couldn't move my arms. And eventually, even the the muscles within my lungs gave out. And I was on life support. So the only thing that saved my life was the extraneous muscle from bodybuilding. But here's the thing, Nikki. Dying wasn't the scariest part. Dying with nothing to show for your time on Earth is definitely the scariest part. And so what I told myself is that If I survive this, I will be very intentional with every person I meet. I'll treat myself and them like tomorrow doesn't exist. And as a result, you'll see the abnormal growth in my career. You'll see why I helped over 150 students obtain their master's degrees, why I publish content frequently, why I'm passionate about removing barriers for minorities and women. Because at the end of the day, Nikki, I'd rather spend a life living than just existing. I think that is an amazing story with definitely living your life with purpose. Right. I think sometimes it's hard for people to say, I know as a child, it's hard for pe- children to see, you know, even teens like, you know, what does that mean? You know, it's all about me. But as you do get older, it really becomes what are you, what are you here for? And what do you what do you want to sh- be known for? Right. You know, and how do you want to help? You know, we're all here. I've I've always looked at. We're here to serve. Everybody is here on earth to serve in some capacity. And, and right. what ways are you going to serve? And so I, that is, that's so crazy. So, I mean, wow. I mean, there is definitely a reason for you to be here because you are really making waves and headway and putting a lot of information out there for people to use and, and helping you know, to eliminate some of these barriers. So thank you for all that you are doing. But do you ever think you'll step back into the bodybuilding arena? Do you think you'll try it again? 
I I feel like right now. So right now, what I'm working on is uh, you know focus on the wife and 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 family. Mm-hmm. So you know we're crying, and I would like to have two or three kids running around. I have a feel like they're all going to be girls and drive me crazy. But <laughs> I, I do feel an obligation to get back into bodybuilding just to be able to protect myself and my wife because having a muscular dystrophy disease does disadvantage you. And Mm -hmm. uh, the worst thing is like, if something did happen, I wasn't able to protect my family. I don't know how I would live with myself. So that is something um, that I'm actively working on, which is why I prioritize work-life balance because if I'm working 60 hours a week, then how can I be proficient as a husband? You know, how can I be usable as a husband? Right. And speaking of work-life balance, you do so much. How do you keep work-life balance in check? Mm. Uh, One, about three years ago, and well, 2018 is where stuff just started just getting out of hand. Like I was, whether it's uh, TV interviews or podcasts or contributing, like I need a way to manage this because one, I like doing it, but I still got to build different programs at, at work. And so what I developed was a, what's called a second brain, um, a second brain in this solution called Notion. And we call this a life operating system. So what it does is you you list out all the goals that you want to accomplish in life and then the objectives in there, as well as what are the individual projects or what you call action items you're going to do every week. And so just like if you've been in the agile environment, you know how they use user stories and sprints? I do that with my life. So on Sundays, I'll plan out my week. What are the five scheduled actions that I want to take care of? Like preparing for this interview, what I want to speak about, what questions will Nikki ask me? How do I want to create an impact? What is the outcome? But that has to support a major goal. And that major goal is being a a reputable content provider, but being a primary contributor at Azaka. That's a goal of mine. Why do I want that That goal is so I can broadcast equitable inclusion and research to people who are not getting the same opportunities as me. So everything's linked. And the reason why I do that is because this is something that I, I genuinely love and I care about. And I want to get rid of the good old boy system in hiring. I want more opportunities for women and minorities, but I only can do that with science. And what I do from day to day now, I wake up in the morning, I have a do not do list. Uh, what I don't oh, want like to get stuck I like it. Yeah. I, I don't want to get stuck watching cat videos for, for a few hours or be on Reddit, just scroll. <laughs> Uh, or answering messages. So a few things I do is I only respond to emails three times out the day. I only respond to IMs in, in a group two times out the day. People are like, well, what's something that's urgent? If something's urgent, they'll call you. Um, and the reason why you do that is because there's no such thing as multitasking. There's only serial tasking. You can only do one thing with the complete attention at one time. And if you if you find how much you kept switching between every day, you have task residue. You're not proficient in anything because you're never present for that one thing you need to do. So there's some good books on there um, by Peter Hollins. I can definitely share that later. Um, then you also, there's some some applications out there called habit trackers. So if there's a habit you're trying to get rid of or you want to develop, you can come up with a habit tracker on Android or iOS. I, I've developed my own in my life operating system through Notion, but these things, give me quantifiable and measurable results of how I am being a good husband, um, how I am contributing to my friends, what I'm doing at work, removing barriers, um, political divides at work, whatever it is. And even this is, this is one you'll appreciate. Maybe one you share with your husband too. 
Yeah. I have one on there where I I'm vacuuming the floors, going to the backyard, cleaning up or upstairs. But the the habit is timed at seven o'clock in the evening. Now, why is it timed at seven o'clock in the evening? Because that's when y'all's coming. That's when you guys are coming home. And you right. know, just because we do it during the day doesn't mean it's done. You got to see it. So <laughs> that's what I'm doing it. And so when the wife's like, "Oh, thank you," blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. And that is the that is one of the most romantic things you can do. It. As a right. It, the game changes when you get older. It's not about flowers and stuff. It's like you come home. There's no dishes in the sink. Oh. No, no, that that is right. flowers to me. There that is go. flowers to me. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. So how can people reach out to you and connect with you before we wrap uh, up? So what I would recommend is I'm very active on LinkedIn. I don't get on a lot of different social media platforms, but you could either do that or just Google or search for me by Dr. Blake Curtis. And most people reach out to me for educational consulting uh, career progression, leadership mentoring, uh, scientific research. If you want want a committee member, I can definitely do that. If you want to go over learning techniques, uh, memory optimization, or consulting on how to create a cybersecurity governance program, I am not charging for any of those services, but you can do- donate, buy me all the coffee in the world. <laughs> that would give me a chance to get out the house and go to Starbucks, and that's on you. But yeah, that's how you can get in contact with me. Well, Dr. Blake, it has been a pleasure. You know, we could literally talk all day long, <laughs> all day long. I have enjoyed the time with you. And thanks right. for spending the time with me. And if you would like to learn more about Dr. Blake Curtis, click on the link in the description below. I'm Nikki Gomes, and thank you for tuning in. Thanks, everybody.